Welcome. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast, the show that cuts through the fog of war and updates you about the ongoing conflict in Ukraine. With your host, Linnea Hubbard. Don't forget to like, comment and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts. I'm Linnea Hubbard, and today is Wednesday, September 7th, 2022. It's been 3,114 days since Russia occupied Crimea on February 27th, 2014, and 195 days since the large-scale invasion of Ukraine began. Today's podcast looks at what happened yesterday in the Russia-Ukraine war. The Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War update is compiled by our team from around the world. Today's report includes information from direct contacts in Ukraine and their proxies, Russian Ministry of Defense reports, the General Staff of the Armed Forces of Ukraine reports, Operational Command South of Ukraine, Open Source Intelligence, our in-house team of analysts and geolocation experts, and pro-Ukrainian and pro-Russian mill bloggers and social media accounts with a track record of trying to be accurate. We have one mission— to report the truth, because the truth matters. From March to mid-May, malcontent news situation reports were typically written twice a day, because the situation was so dynamic and it was impossible to summarize events once a day. Today's report was repeatedly rewritten because of the Ukrainian counteroffensive in Kharkiv, Izium, and Kherson. Ukrainian forces have advanced 23 kilometers in 12 hours, and we are receiving a flood of reports on liberated cities and towns, captured Russian troops, shot down aircraft, etc. For the time being, we are putting a pause on covering economic and geopolitical news and maybe making other changes to our format as well. The battlefield is just too dynamic right now. But let's go ahead and get started with our assessment of the current status of the war. First, our assessment on June 13th that the first belligerent to reach a combat-destroyed state would face a defensive collapse on multiple axes that would get progressively worse was accurate. Second, our assessment on September 5th that Ukraine had worked to set conditions for a counteroffensive to liberate Izum and that there were signs that a broader attack on Russian positions was coming was also accurate. Third, Ukrainian forces launching a second major counteroffensive in Izum and Kharkiv shows high confidence in their military capabilities. Fourth, Russian defensive lines north of Izum have entirely collapsed, with Ukrainian forces severing multiple critical ground lines of communication, or G-locks, those are supply lines. The entire Russian axis is at high risk of collapsing. Fifth, the Russian Ministry of Defense has limited reserves, and they are located in the wrong place to respond quickly to the Ukrainian advance. The Russian options to respond on one front will come at the cost of another. Sixth, the wasting of Russian light infantry forces and equipment has caused a crisis with no way to respond quickly. Seventh, Russia's inability to establish air supremacy remains a deciding factor for Ukraine— Ukrainian suppress and destroy enemy air defense efforts are stopping Russian efforts to end offensive operations in Kherson, Kharkiv, and Izum. Eighth, sham ballot referendums in Kharkiv, Luhansk, Donetsk, Zaporizhia, Kherson are entirely out of reach. Ninth, 
We maintain that the risk of Russian terror attacks on civilians and civilian infrastructure to break morale is exceptionally high and will remain so for the foreseeable future. Tenth, we are deeply concerned about the potential for war crimes in Izum and the discovery of previous war crimes when Izum is liberated. And finally, not all victories on the battlefield are kinetic. Ukraine's continuous attacks on Russian GLOCs indicates the larger plan is to collapse Russian resistance by forcing them to consume their existing supplies to the point of exhaustion. Let's get some regional updates, starting with the Kherson counteroffensive and Mykolaiv. The counteroffensive continues with widespread artillery fire and fighting across the region. Some sources assess Oleksandrivka as under Ukrainian control based on repeated reports of shelling and airstrikes on the town. We're not convinced, as territorial control has changed frequently, and it is a difficult area to defend. The village of Shmitovo was liberated, further securing Ternovipodi to the west. Russian forces attempted to advance on Ternovipodi but were unsuccessful. A small contingent of Russian troops crossed the Inulets River into Krasnolyubetsk from Kolomivsky. Members of the pro-Ukrainian Belarusian Terror Battalion fired mortars into the town, striking Russian positions on the eastern edge. The General Staff of the Armed Forces of Ukraine, or GSAFU, reported that Ukrainian positions near Mala Sidimenucha were shelled by artillery, NASA Fire Information for Resource Management Systems, or FIRMS, showed hotspots in Malasidamenucha. We've coded the settlement as contested and noted a Ukrainian advance from Novohrednieve. Operational Command South, or OCS, reported that Ukrainian positions in Bilohirka, Bezimen, Kostromka, and Sukistavok were hit by airstrikes, confirming Ukraine still controls the expanding Inulets River bridgehead. The number of reports of shelling and airstrikes in Bilohirka has increased, implying that Ukrainian forces are making gains in the direction of Davidi Brid. Pro-Russian accounts claim three more Ukrainian bridges were destroyed. This is unlikely, but even if true, the Inulets River remains low enough for military vehicles to simply drive across. Ukrainian forces raised the flag in Novovosnesensk, nine kilometers south of Viskopilia, confirming the settlement has been liberated. The GSAFU is no longer listing the settlements hit by artillery fire in Kherson, tightening operational security and making it harder to evaluate ongoing advances. Pro-Russian accounts that have continued to claim Russian forces are in Arkhangelsk now say that Russian troops are only on the southern edge and are getting pushed out. Novopetrivka is under Russian control, but likely not a fun place unless 155mm artillery shells falling out of the sky makes you happy. TASS reported that Russian forces have given up on any future repair attempts on the Antonovsky and Novokhovka bridges. The Russian state media publication claims it is no longer, quote, expedient to do so. Kirill Stramusov, deputy head of the Russian-appointed Military Civilian Regional Administration of Occupied Kherson, told TASS that the ferries are more than adequate for supplying Russian troops. On September 4th, the Antonovsky Bridge was hopelessly damaged, with pictures showing the upper deck shredded and hanging in pieces under the bridge. The Novokhovka Bridge was struck on September 5th, 
collapsing the final remains of the structure into the Dnipro. OCS reported that Russian ammunition depots in Holia Pristan, Tominabalka, and Snikhorivka were destroyed. The pontoon bridge at Tarivka was destroyed, along with a cache of Russian equipment, fuel, or ammunition. The site burned for over 36 hours, with hotspots indicated on NASA firms despite the cloud cover. The Ukrainian Air Force executed 13 airstrikes on Russian targets, while artillery supported 250 fire missions. The reduction in activity is supportive of an operational pause by Ukraine to consolidate liberated territory and strengthen GLOCs. Additionally, the Ukrainian Air Force was busy in Kharkiv and Izum. Weather forecast models predict rain on Friday, Sunday, and Monday throughout the region, with Monday as the wettest day. Rasputitsa will impact the operations of both belligerents, but will hit Russians in outdoor defensive positions harder. It will also make it harder to maneuver armored vehicles. Attacks on Mykolaiv have almost completely stopped due to the ongoing Ukrainian counteroffensive. Our assessment in Kherson and Mykolaiv is unchanged from September 5th. You'll find it on Monday's episode around minute 3 or 4. Let's move on to Dnipropetrovsk and northern Zaporizhia. Two inspectors with the International Atomic Energy Agency, or IAEA, remain at the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. The rest of the team departed on September 5th. The organization also released its report on the status of the plant and its recommendations, which stated, quote, While the ongoing shelling has not yet triggered a nuclear emergency, it continues to represent a constant threat to nuclear safety and security, with potential impact on critical safety functions that may lead to radiological consequences with great safety significance. End quote. The organization called for an end to hostilities and creating a nuclear safety and security zone around the plant, something the Kremlin has already flatly refused. The team documented Russian military equipment stored in the Reactor 1 and 2 complexes and military vehicles parked outside the overpass that connects the reactor units. They also observed Russian members of Rosenerhoatom and Russian soldiers interfering with plant operations and safety. The interference has caused extreme stress on the Ukrainian operators, and some areas of the plant are significantly understaffed. The report recommended removing military hardware from the facility, better treatment for the staff, improved staffing levels, and for Russian officials and military personnel to stop interfering with plant operations. The study expressed concern about the lack of connection to external power sources for plant operation and the quality and quantity of the diesel fuel supply for the backup generators at each reactor. They cited supply chain issues and keeping reserve fuel at an adequate level to operate the plant for 10 days if required. Russian military leaders have occupied the plant's emergency operations center, barred Ukrainian employees from entering the facility, and disconnected internet access. They've also prevented drills for emergency preparedness. The IAEA called for the Russian military to leave the operations center and re-establish classes and drills to ensure plant safety, especially considering the current environment. The report also called for internet access to be returned and for redundant satellite communications to be installed. Russian leaders, their UN representative, and mill bloggers expressed frustration that the report did not identify a culprit for the shelling of the plant. 
Director General Rafael Rossi told reporters that their team did not have the expertise to make that evaluation, and it doesn't fall within the IAEA charter. Predictably, attacks on Nikopol intensified with the departure of the majority of IAEA inspectors. The city was hit with dozens of grad rockets fired by multiple launch rocket systems, or MLRS, hospitalizing two people. The attack damaged homes, apartment buildings, a kindergarten, two schools, an art center, and natural gas and power lines. Power was knocked out to 2,000 homes in the attack. The fire that tore through an oil depot in Kriviri was extinguished after burning for 16 hours. The depot was heavily damaged, with a significant amount of fuel and oil destroyed. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. Our team of journalists, researchers, and analysts is funded by readers, listeners, and viewers just like you. To support independent journalism, please consider becoming a patron. You can find us on patreon.com at Malcontent News. Now to the Donbass region, starting with southern Zaporizhia. The situation is unchanged from Monday, with exchanges of artillery, rockets fired by MLRS, an indirect tank fire from the administrative border with Donetsk to Huliapola to Orekhiv to Kamyanskia. Ukrainian forces continue to put pressure on Russian troops in the direction of Tokmak and Polokhi. The Russian Gauleiter in Berdyansk, Artem Bardin, was severely injured when a car bomb destroyed his vehicle. Bardin is reportedly in critical condition with severe burns and lost both legs in the attack. In southwest Donetsk, Russian forces attempted to recapture Novobakhmatyvka, but were unsuccessful. The DNR militia released a video on September 6th showing a lone person between Piski and Pervomaisky near the E-50 ring road within sight of the seed factory north of Piski. The area was the scene of heavy fighting the day before. We've adjusted the map and have decided to leave Piski as contested, until one belligerent or the other can hold the area for more than 24 hours. The 1st Army Corps of the DNR also attempted to advance into Optin, Avdivka, and Marinka with more minor attacks, and no success. The situation around Bakhmut is unchanged. Russian forces attempted to advance on Solidar, Bakhmutska, and Bakhmut, with Solidar and Bakhmut coming under heavy artillery fire, but could not gain new territory. Russian forces continued attempts to advance on Zaitseve and Vesela Dolina, but couldn't gain new territory there either. In the Svetlodarsk bulge, the private military company, or PMC, Wagner Group claimed they captured Kodema in a video they released. Only two points in the video could be geolocated in the village, with the opening starting at a power plant near Svetlodarsk captured on July 27th. The video showed a lone vehicle entering the eastern tip of Kodema by 700 whole meters. The GSAFU also reported continued fighting for control of Kodema in the AM report. Based on our analysis, we maintain Kodema is still contested, and this was a Kremlin-requested victory video for a picture report. Kadyrovites with the 141st Akhmat failed to advance on Zaitseve, and haven't made any cool TikTok videos showing their incredible successes. Our assessment in Bakhmut is unchanged from August 25th. We recapped it on last Thursday's episode around minute 11. In northeast Donetsk and Luhansk, 
Russian forces attempted to advance on Triorivka and were unsuccessful. Ukrainian forces have countered, advancing toward Bilohorivka, the one in Luhansk, from the south and moving about 500 meters. The Luhansk People's Republic, or LNR, 2nd Army Corps shelled Ukrainian positions in Verknokamyanskia, showing that Ukrainian troops are further east than initially believed. A drone video recorded on September 5th showed a Russian reconnaissance unit in Spirne coming under Ukrainian fire. The unit was neutralized. Ukrainian forces liberated Sari Karavan, with a video showing the 79th Air Assault Brigade walking freely through the streets. Ukrainian troops are now six kilometers from Lehman, where up to 10,000 residents live under occupation without access to natural gas, water, electricity, trash or sewer service, and almost no humanitarian aid. Partisans have reported that Lehman is poorly defended, with only a small garrison. The Russian Ministry of Defense is incapable of responding to the Ukrainian advances, which are almost uncontested due to the start of a significant counteroffensive northwest of Izum and no deployable reserve force. Our assessment here is the same as it was on August 18th. We recapped it on last Thursday's episode around minute 14. Moving on to the Kharkiv region, starting with the Izum Axis. As you may remember from yesterday, Ukraine launched a major counteroffensive across a broad axis northwest of Izum. So we've had to update some objectives. The updated Russian objective here is to stop the Ukrainian counteroffensive, re-establish broken G-locks north of Izum, and generally prevent the liberation of Izum. The updated Ukrainian objective is to take strategic advantage of tactical gains made at the start of the counteroffensive, interdict Russian G-locks, capture Russian troops, munitions, and equipment, and force Russian retreat from Izum while inflicting maximum casualties. The speed of the advance has been shocking, with Russian defenses quickly overrun by combined armed forces supported by artillery, rocket attacks, and the Ukrainian Air Force. Troops advanced 11 kilometers in 24 hours, liberating or surrounding LNR and DNR conscript units in Stepova, Ivanivka, Studenok, Vovchiyar, Kalinivka, Taranushin, Volkhivyar, and pushed all the way to Semenivka. Videos showed Ukrainian troops in Volkhivyar severing the E-40 highway, a critical G-lock that goes straight to Izum. The capture effectively cuts off the main supply line west of the Oskil River. A Russian Su-25 aircraft was shot down during a low-altitude pass over the town. Ukrainian forces also advanced from Prishib and within hours captured the Bivka, including a large Russian ammunition depot. LNR and DNR troops retreated from their checkpoints in disarray, with Ukrainian forces advancing into the fortress city of Balaklia, overrunning Russian artillery positions. Another group of Ukrainian troops turned north on the T-2110 highway, storming to Yakovenkov, which was also liberated. Publicly, Russian state media started a coordinated disinformation campaign that there was no, quote, panic in Balaklia, and that Russian forces were already advancing on Bayrak. That was impossible, with Russian forces blowing up the bayrak balaklia bridge approximately two weeks ago, as we previously reported. 
Privately, Russian mill bloggers and some unaffiliated Russian journalists were indeed in a panic at the audacity and speed of the attack. Russian forces blew up at least two bridges to slow Ukraine's advance. Ukrainian forces crossed the Siversky Donets at Zaleman in a contested wet crossing, established a bridgehead, and powered into Savintsi, which is now contested. However, Ukraine was able to sever the eastern route out of Balaklia. Russian troops are encircled in Balaklia and under Ukrainian fire control, marking the first large group of soldiers from either belligerent to be surrounded during the war. Pictures showed a highly prepared and well-supplied medic station behind the main battle line, working on injured Ukrainian soldiers in a coordinated and orderly fashion. Russian casualties, particularly among PMC Wagner, are reported to be exceedingly high, with some units suffering a 40% casualty rate. Today. Some assessment here? Wow. That's the first word here. Wow. On September 5th, that's two days ago, we reported, quote, it would be audacious to open up a second major counteroffensive to liberate Izum. However, if the counteroffensive in Kherson is exceeding expectations, or if Ukraine has the resources, this would be the most logical place to launch a second attack. Russian troops have low morale, and there are significant ammunition shortages. Most of the units on the Axis are poorly equipped and trained, and used by PMC Wagner Group as frontline troops. The First Guard's tank army is ill-suited for the forests of Izum, and there is a lack of light infantry to provide armor support. End quote. So, our assessment was accurate, and the GSAFU must be pretty confident about their progress in Kherson. Ukraine is clearly advancing on Shevchenkov, moving 23 kilometers in 12 hours. The capture of Shevchenkov could be the base for an eastern advance to Kupiansk, which would be a crushing blow to every Russian position south of the city to Izum itself. Additionally, capturing Shevchenkov would likely force the Russian units west of here, near Ukrainian-controlled Chekhiv, to withdraw because of the risk of encirclement. These are poorly trained DNR and LNR conscripts, PMC Wagner mercenaries, terrorists with the Imperial Legion, the First Guard's tank army with inadequate light infantry support, and some Russian VDV, or airborne, and Spetnaz forces. Ukraine has been setting conditions for this counteroffensive since June. Dozens of HIMARS rockets have been fired across the region and into Izum, targeting ammunition depots, troop concentrations, equipment, and command and control for the last two weeks. Russian units in forward operation bases in Sherwood Forest, west of Izum, and in remote locations east, north, and south are isolated with limited communications. We had assessed on June 13th that if either belligerent reached the point of combat destroyed, there would likely be a multi-axis failure and the collapse would come quickly. Russian forces did make some small gains, as we noted earlier in the report, but as a whole— have lost more territory today than everything they gained from August 1st through September 6th. Ukraine had documented advances in Kharkiv, Luhansk, Donetsk, and Kherson oblasts. Russian military commanders have almost no reserve force to tap and now must make tough decisions with the remaining troops at their disposal. A withdrawal from Izum will make the capture of the Donbass unobtainable. In the morning report from the GSAFU, 
Russia attempted to advance on Dolina. This was likely done around the same time the Ukrainian counteroffensive started, or communication didn't reach the group in time. It's doubtful we will see any attempts to advance to the south with Russian defensive lines north of Izum in complete collapse. There's an important editor's note here. A word of caution, okay? Units previously assigned to the defense of Izum include the 38th and the 64th, responsible for some of the worst atrocities in the war in Bucha and Irpin. Up to 4,000 members of the neo-Nazi organization Imperial Legion have passed through Izum and served as a territorial guard along with PMC Wagner. Remember, Izum has been under occupation since late March, and we are deeply concerned about what may be discovered when Izum is liberated. Our assessment here needs updating. There wasn't any significant ground fighting in northern Kharkiv, Typical artillery exchanges occurred along the entire line of conflict northwest, north and northeast of Kharkiv, and our assessment here is unchanged from August 12th. We last recapped it last Friday around minute 22. To the north in the Cherniv and Sumy region, Dmitro Zhivitsky, Sumy Oblast administrative and military governor, reported the Hromodas of Nova Sloboda, Bilopilia, Midopilia, Seredina Buda, Snobnovhorod, and Shalakhin were hit by mortars and artillery fired from across the international border. There were no casualties reported. Russian and Ukrainian troops got into border skirmishes in the Esmen and Snobnovhorod areas. And that's what we know. Join me again tomorrow for more updates. Until then, stay safe, everyone. You've been listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. To help keep us independent, please consider providing financial support by becoming a patron. Want on-demand news in your hand? Download the Google News app and make Malcontent News one of your favorites to receive breaking news updates. Thank you for listening.